Brothers and sisters, there are two things that I want you to hear this morning, that I need you to hear this morning, that our God is angry and that our apathy in the face of such anger is appalling. We love to talk about salvation, as we have already been doing this morning. It's the message that we proclaim. In fact, each week as we gather here, we, we glory in the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we want to tell other people about the salvation that we can have. We want other people to know about this salvation and be saved in Jesus Christ. We proclaim the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Yet in our day, we have neglected part of the message that goes along with this. All these things we should proclaim. We should be telling people about the love of God. We should, be, we should be telling people about God's mercy and kindness. But we kind of want to downplay. We don't really want to talk about God's anger and his wrath. Yeah, sure, we, we often mention the justice of God when we want to talk about sin and why Jesus needed to die. We talk about the, the, God's uh, justice for sin and that Jesus needed to come and, and, and take a, uh, deal with that justice of God. But it's almost as though we just want to kind of just talk about it just enough to kind of get past it and get back to talking about the stuff we're comfortable with, like love and, and mercy. But today I want to start setting things in a more balanced way. We're going to think about the wrath and displeasure of God especially as it concerns his people, the people of God. We're going to push against our natural tendency, which would be to kind of go, yes, and move on. We're going to camp out here for a bit. It might be a little bit uncomfortable, but it is good for us. You see, God is good. He is the definition of good. We can only measure goodness against him. He's righteousness itself. So alignment with God is the measure of good and right and true. It's like using a ruler. If you want to draw a straight line, what do you need a straight what do you need to draw a straight line? You need a ruler or a straight edge. And so it is when it comes to aligning our lives against the Lord, we need we, we need to know what the standard is. What is true? What is right? What is good? We need God's righteousness. It's not for us to invent our own standards of what is good and right. Because that's our tendency. Our tendency is to invent a standard about what is good and right and then use it to measure God. How foolish. How foolish that we should be the ones to judge whether or not he is good or right. The witless atheist will allege that God is somehow evil for pouring out his justice and wrath against rebellious nations. Or they'll state that God is unloving because bad things happen in the world. But by what standard are they measuring these things? By what standard? How can that atheist measure good and evil? He's only making faux righteousness that suits himself and then holding it up as an excuse to blaspheme God because the fool says in his heart that there is no God and then he strives against God until he comes face to face with God and meets God's justice. 
God is good. God is the standard of everything that is good and right. He is perfect. As we opened our service this morning, we said he is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. He is the standard. And there is nothing lacking in God. He can never be any better or worse than he is and has always been. He's in a perpetual state of perfection. And everything that he does represents perfection and goodness. And so when the scriptures speak of God's wrath, his anger, his vengeance, we must remember that this is good wrath. This is good anger. This is good vengeance. It is holy, it is right, and it is awesome. Now, this wrath, this anger is terrifying. In the old speak, we would say that God is terrible. Not in the way that we use that word now to mean kind of bad, but terrible in the sense of God inspires terror. Let me read a passage from Nahum. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. And what is the right response to God revealing himself this way? We lift up our voices and we praise him. We praise our good and wonderful God. But I wonder, are you balking at this? Does this make you shy away from praising God in his splendor of holiness? Why? I think we know why. It's because we don't want to have to come to grips with the wrath of God. We don't want to have to come to grips with his terrible holiness. It is uncomfortable to consider just how far short we fall against God. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord and not presume that we know better than him. We need to praise him and glorify him for all that he is in his love and his mercy and in his justice and righteous anger. We need to praise him, glorify him, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, for all his wonderful attributes. Now, we know when we see jealousy and anger in our fellow human, it's often flawed. You know, but we do, we do know that there is a right place for anger and jealousy in this life and vengeance. You know, anger from a mother against somebody who is harming her child. Fair enough. That's righteous anger. That the, uh, the civil authorities are meant to uh, meter out vengeance on criminals, people who have broken the law and done the wrong thing. They are God's agents for that purpose. Jealousy is right in a, in a marriage relationship. A husband should be jealous over the affections of his wife. But we also understand that while there is a good place for these kinds of uh, attitudes and, and emotions, they often we mess it up. 
more often than not, we probably see unrighteous anger rather than righteous anger. More often than not, we see vengeance not properly meted out or, or, or overcompensating. Or perhaps uh, we see jealousy that is actually built on pride and selfishness rather than being an appropriate kind of jealousy. So we are poor reflections of God in this area. But God is not. When God reveals his righteousness and his anger and his vengeance and his jealousy, it is good and perfect. We don't look to each other for that standard. We look to God to see what the standard is. His perfection will never fail. So look at his wrath. Look at his anger to see what is good and right. Know your God. Let's turn now to think about the fat Israel and the angry Lord. You probably know the story, but if you don't know, let me just catch you up a little bit. Back in the day, God saved Israel out of Egypt. There was an obvious salvation there. They were literally slaves in Egypt. And God came along and said, you are my chosen people. I'm going to rescue you out of your slavery. They called out to God and said, God, save us. And so God came and he saved them. He pulled them out of Egypt. Despite all that Egypt, all the forces that Egypt could throw at it, God saved them and rescued them. And he said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and bring you to your promised land. You will have a land that is rich and flowing with milk and honey. You will live in the land and I'll live with you. Out of all the nations, God especially put his love on Israel. And they had to trust and obey God while he pulled off their salvation. He chose them. He cared for them. He provided for their needs. And then God brought them up to the land. And they had to trust and obey on the way. And they were preparing to go into the promised land and start claiming it as God had given it to them. And they sent spies into the land to suss out, you know, what's going on? What are the people like? Where's the fortified cities? That kind of thing. So they sent 12 spies into the land. The 12 spies came back and 10 said, nah, too hard. And two spies said, let's get in there. Let's go get it like God has said. But Israel, what did they do? They listened to the majority. The majority is not always right. They shirked their responsibility. They didn't trust and obey. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And he made them wander in the desert for 40 years. They were still his chosen people. He had still saved them. He had still rescued them and loved them. But a whole generation balked at what God was calling them to do. And they lost out. They died in the wilderness before they reached the fullness of blessing. And, and so a whole new generation rose up and they entered the Transjordan, the area to the east of Israel proper, on, over the, on the east of the Jordan. And uh, they went into battle and they had victory. They fought against King Og and King Sihon. And they listened to God. They trusted and obeyed and, and they won. And Moses led them that far to the edge of the Jordan. But Moses was not allowed to go in to the promised land proper. He was not allowed to go in. Does anybody, do any of the kids know why Jesus, uh, Moses wasn't able to go into the promised land? 
Yes. He did something that God hadn't told him to do. He was disobedient. And so God said, you don't get to go into the land. You can see it, but you don't get to go in. And so on the doorstep of entering into the land with the new generation of Israel, Moses was asked by God to write a song for them, a song that would teach them about what they were to do as they go into the land, a song that we call the Song of Moses. God said, uh, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. This song was to be a song of encouragement and warning for Israel, a song to teach them about God and about what was on the line, teach them about God's nature, and was to prepare them for what they were to come as they entered the promised land. And we're not going to go through the whole song today, but I encourage you this afternoon to sit down and to read it. For us today, I'm focusing on a couple key verses that we want to bring to your attention on this topic of wrath and our apathy. Going down to verse 15 in chapter 32, which is the song of Moses, we hear, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and made him who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. As I mentioned before, Jeshurun is a nickname for Israel. It means upright one. And so it is kind of a a picture of the ideal of what Israel is meant to be, the upright one. It should be the name of all of God's people, upright ones who seek him and follow him. But here in this poetic prophecy of Israel, we see here that the people of Israel, the upright one, has grown fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek and forsook God. This was what was going to happen for them. They, as a a nation, had already experienced some lapses in judgment and faithfulness on their way to the promised land, as I mentioned before, the whole generation who died in the wilderness. But this is looking forward again. As they come into the land and they feast upon the fullness of the land, God knew what was going to happen. And this is what did happen. They went into the land, the upright ones of God, they settled there, they took houses that they didn't build, they received vineyards that they didn't plant. They brought their herds from the desert years, but they also uh, were given a plunder of the land. They were able to take much livestock that was already there for their own. They had abundance. They had everything they needed for the good life. They had the land flowing with milk and honey. They grew fat and lazy. They grew stout and sleek. It's like imagery talking about livestock here, like a cow grazing on good land. They bulked up. They had a good shiny coat. And then they went and kicked the one who feeds them and protects them. They pushed away the one who provided for them and cared for them. They received the blessing and they pushed God away. And they went off to do their own thing. They're like gold diggers. Somebody who marries a rich person for their money. And at first, they're very fawning and attentive, appearing as the devoted partner. And then when they get all that they wanted, access to the money and riches and wealth, they ignore their new spouse. 
they have the goods in the bag, so there's no incentive to keep investing in the relationship. Israel got what they wanted, they got their deliverance, they got their promised land, and they turned away from the one who gave it to them. Further down in the song, it says, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Israel grew fat and lazy. They forgot God. They pushed him to the side to do their own thing. In fact, they even started to dabble in the worship of other gods. They found idols that were more interesting or exciting than the Savior. And so God's anger was kindled against them. His righteous anger and justifiable wrath was aroused against them. As it said in verse 22, For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, that is to the, to the grave, the realm of the dead. It devours the whole earth and its increase. It sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. This is not God's wrath poured out against his enemies, This is God's wrath against his own people. The possession whom he loved. And this anger goes deep to the bottomless depths of the pit. From the wells of Sheol, enough to burn down the whole earth. A consuming fire. And it's perfectly good anger towards his people who were rejecting him. Who were pushing him to the side. Who were happy to receive the benefits of God's love but not remain loyal to him. They were like a spouse who was happy to have their marriage and the benefits of that, but wanting to fool around and keep affairs cooking on the side. God is righteously angry with them. And that great anger was poured out on his people throughout times in their history. They experienced disasters and disease and famine and war as God promised them. They experienced great sorrow. They experience great punishment from God. And at the end, in the middle of this song, it basically says, look, if it wasn't for my reputation, I would wipe you off the face of the map. Friends, I'm sure you've already started to see some of the connections. But we're like Israel of old. We are not Israel of old. We're not under the old covenant but we are like them in so many ways. God has given us a great bounty. We are rich beyond imagining. If you just take, uh, start thinking it through for a minute and start thinking about the vast number of people throughout the vast uh, uh, amount of history, we are extremely wealthy. Even if you had no personal possessions to your name, you would still be one of the wealthiest people on the earth because you are in this country. The collective wealth that you have as a citizen in this society is massive. From simple things like public toilets to libraries to infrastructure that is there and accessible at your fingertips. You can go to an op shop and with a few hundred dollars you can furnish a comfortable home and it might not be uh, all matching, it might not uh, be in the latest style, but through the simple secondhand stuff that you can get, you can have luxury that is well beyond what most people throughout history have ever experienced. You go to the shop and, and there's a vast array of exotic fruits at your fingertips. Many of those are, were from distant lands and very rare 
for most of humans throughout most of history. And now I can walk into the supermarket and choose between so many different types of fresh food right there at my fingertips. And not only different uh, species, different types of fruit, I can get different varieties amongst those different types. With a few dollars, I can buy the most exotic fruits so that they can sit in my fruit bowl at home and rot because I've got so much food, I don't need to eat it. We are so wealthy. And we are the inheritors of the wealth that has come down to us from our forefathers, forebears, that has come down to us by virtue of being in this country, by virtue of being inheritors of the, the Christian West. It's infused, it's got Christianity infused in its ideology and politics and morality and culture. It's been handed down generation by generation and we've benefited from it. We've been blessed by it. I'm not trying to excuse the mistakes we've made along the way, but we have experienced great blessing from God to this very day. And we've grown fat and we've forgotten the Lord. We have pushed him aside to dabble in things that are more enjoyable to us, that uh, uh, titillate the senses, that, uh, that engage our passions. We've taken the blessing and we've kicked the blesser. And God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And we stand under the wrath of God and we should be consumed by his fury. So what hope is there for us? Jesus removes God's wrath. God's anger against unrighteousness in his people should mean that we're wiped off the face of the earth. He can't stand sin. It's a stain on his world and an affront to his holiness. And that means that each and every one of us should be absolutely wiped away. All of us have sinned and we stand condemned before God. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, for such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Any one of us has been disobedient. We should have no part in God's kingdom. In fact, we should be under God's wrath right this very moment because of what we have done and the way that we have received his bountiful gifts and spurned him. Yet God makes a way. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. And so we should die. We are sinners. But then what did Jesus do? Jesus came into the world and it says that he became sin for us. He became sin for us. And so Jesus, who was righteous and perfect as God himself incarnate, took on sin and God's wrath was revealed against, from heaven against the sin in Christ. And so Jesus propitiated God's wrath for his people. He took it away. He dealt with God's wrath for his people. He made atonement. And then he said, receive the gift of salvation. Receive freedom from your sin. Receive freedom from the wrath of God. Receive it and escape 
So for those who come to Christ, for those who are found in him, for those who pledge their loyalty to him and believe on him and trust in him, who turn away from these former things, they will receive salvation from God's wrath. They will receive eternal life. But those who remain outside Christ shall die. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So Christ has dealt with God's wrath in a way that means that we do not need to be consumed and and suffer if we are in Jesus Christ. But now we need to turn to our present situation. Let's assume that, that I would hope that all of you would repent of your former ways, repent of your sin, and put your faith and trust in Jesus so that you might escape God's wrath. But now we need to consider what does it look like now for us here? As people who have received the mercy and the grace of God, who have had God's wrath taken away from us through Jesus Christ. But we're still God's people and we can still displease God. We can still do things that uh, he doesn't like. We can still do things that would seem to inspire his anger. But not in the anger in the sense of he's going to wipe us off the face of the earth, but anger of a father who has children that he needs to discipline. So what we have today, in our present moment, is we have a fat church and a disciplining father. Like Israel of old, we have grown fat on the good things that God has given us. And I don't just mean the the earthly blessings that we have received the physical, tangible things that we have that I was talking about before. But also, we've grown fat with the great resources and blessings of God that we have, the spiritual things that He has poured out on us, with the Holy Spirit, with His Word given to us, with the great access that we have to learn about Him and know about Him and grow in Him, the great freedom that we have, uh, having so much free time. And yet, He has given us this gift and we go and use it to serve ourselves. God's people have escaped the wrath of God against sin, but we still experience consequences for the way that we use his blessings here and now. His people, we, are his chosen possession, but he will chastise us when we do not trust and obey. You might say, Samuel, don't you remember that now everybody who is a, is a Christian, God, God's wrath's taken away and everything's fine now. Well, if we go and we do a little survey across the New Testament, we will see that that is not the case. That God still reveals his displeasure and still brings consequences, earthly judgments against his people for their disobedience. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira and the way that they blasphemed the Holy Spirit and lied? And what did God do to them? Do you remember Hymenaeus and Alexander? Paul said, I have handed them over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Do you remember that the, those who profaned the Lord's Supper, those who ate and drank without considering the body and the blood of our Lord, God says, that's why some of them are ill and some of them have died because they mistreated the Lord's Supper. Do you remember how, John, how James says, If you're sick, call on the elders and get them to come and pray for you. And if you have sinned, you will be forgiven. 
Sometimes our sick is the result of our, our sickness is the result of our sin. And as we touched on earlier, as we read from Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven letters to seven churches, and Jesus reprimands a bunch of them. In particular, he says to one of them, I will, if you do not repent, I will take your lampstand away. So the, in, in this picture in Revelation, the lampstands represented them as lights in the world, uh, the church of God. And God, Jesus, threatened to take away their lampstand, to take away their church if they didn't repent. And then looking at the church of, I think I said it was Laodicea, as we read before, what does God say to them? I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you will say, I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Brothers and sisters, we have, I think for many of us, if we were to examine ourselves well, would say that this is who we are. We are those who are neither hot nor cold. You know, if you've got hot water, you can use it for something. You can have a nice warm bath. You can, you can use it. Uh, they, there were local areas to Laodicea that they had hot springs and they could use it medicinally. Or, or cold water is good. It's refreshing. You can drink it. It's lovely. But you know what's awful? Is the in the middle. Nothing. Not one or the other. It's useless. Tepid or like warm water that's... It's not good for anything, neither hot nor cold. And I think that represents us in many ways. That we think that we have everything that we need and we don't need to worry about anything, and yet we're growing fat and lazy. We're apathetic to the spiritual things. We have so many resources at our disposal, we should be accomplishing mighty deeds of faith. Where are the mighty deeds of faith in God's church here? There was a generation in Israel who could have done mighty deeds of going up into the land and taking possession of the land like God called them to. But instead they are the generation who is known for their rebellion and dying in the wilderness. And I wonder if that's what we will be known for. Another generation who grew fat on God's blessing but did not honor or serve him with our whole heart. But God will discipline us. So let's turn away from this path now before more drastic action is needed on God's part. God only needs a stump to grow a tree. He could take away our lampstand and grow a faithful church to replace us. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And so even though I stand here this morning giving you this message of God that is, that is a hard word for us to hear, it is given in love because we need to be zealous and repent of our apathy, of our laziness. Repent of your apathy. Repent of your idolatry. Repent of your half-heartedness. Repent of your divided loyalties. There is great blessing for those who will trust and obey. 
There is great blessings. And Jesus, Jesus signals some of those blessings in, in that same letter to Laodicea. To the one who conquers, I will grant with him, uh, him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here we have this great blessing held out for God's people that your labor is not in vain. That if you conquer in Christ's name, not in the sake of taking up swords and, and running around, we're not talking about that kind of warfare. We're talking about spiritual warfare. The one who conquers gets to sit down with Christ on his throne, to share with Christ in his rule and reign. That is a wonderful thing to be able to have. Our, our deeds of faith, our service of God, the one who conquers gets to go and live with Jesus in this way. Because there are eternal consequences for our actions here. Yes, we've been saved from damnation in Jesus Christ. But there is still blessing for continued obedience and faithfulness. There's kind of, if you want to put it, levels of blessing. They, the scriptures talk about escaping through fire. The work done in this life will be tested by fire. And some of us will escape as through fire. Our work will be burned up because it was useless. Everything that we did amounted to nothing in God's eyes. But there will be those who do. They lay a solid foundation on Christ and all of their work in this life actually stands the test and brings honor and glory to God. It is pleasing to him. We're told to lay up our treasure in heaven. We're building for an inheritance that is to come in eternity. Our work will be judged. And so the invitation is for you to trust and obey, to walk in faith and not to remain lazy and apathetic in the face of such a wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. I hope that this message would not be a message that lays a guilt trip on you for the sake of you going, oh man, this is terrible and I've made a right hash of things. In fact, you might look back down the corridor of your life and you might think, how many wasted decades have gone before? This is not for you to, to sit and to bemoan what has been lost, but it is an invitation for you to step forward in faith for what God has for you in the future. What does God have for you now? What is God calling you to do? Will you just rest in the blessing and kind of ignore God? Or will you heed his call for you to lay down your whole life in service of him? We've grown fat. But by God's grace, I hope and I pray that it will not be a fatness that leads to laziness but it will be a fullness, a fullness of receiving what God has for us, but turning and praising and honoring him with all that we have. I want to end with a last reading from Revelation chapter 14. And sorry, it was meant to go over two slides. But this message here is a reminder to us about the wrath of God that is still coming. The wrath of God is taken away in Jesus Christ for his believers, but the wrath of God is still to be pulled poured out fully in the judgment on the last day and there is this picture in revelation of a, of a great beast a, 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 a great beast that leads god's people astray and this this beast and the mark of the beast no it's not vaccines no it's not um, microchips under your skin no the mark of the beast are those who turn against god 
The mark of the beast is a sign that one has turned away from God. And this is what it says. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. That's Jesus Christ. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest or day rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. This is a call for you who stand outside Christ, who have rebelled against God and worship with your life. You, you put your worth and your, and your identity in other things, this is an invitation for you to repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus so that you might escape the wrath of God, the good, righteous, eternal wrath of God. It's a dire and grave warning. And I give it to you not because I want to be mean, but out of love, so that you know what stands for you. The two ways, either with God or against him, either escaping his wrath or receiving it. But for you who belong to God, this calls for patient endurance to keep his commands and remain faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this good news about you. We thank you that you've revealed yourself as a good, faithful God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the goodness in your justice, in your wrath, in your vengeance. Please, Lord, help us to understand and rightly perceive who you are and then to respond and worship you faithfully. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from growing fat and lazy, but out of the fullness and the abundance of what you have given us, please, Lord, help us to turn to you and to honour you, to give thanks and praise to you and to serve you with our whole being. Lord, you told us that the one who lays down their life for your sake will gain it. So please, Lord, help us to lay down our lives for your sake to give up everything that we have in service and honour of you and not to become apath apathetic. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient in all ways, to trust and obey you, to remain faithful to you all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.